Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of Armchair Expert. I'm just kidding. It's Brendan, and clearly I've been binging a few other podcasts. And you know, I really just think I needed to be re-inspired to come back on the mic. I've uh, been real busy with uh, my PhD program. I have been teaching and taking classes and all the things you do as a academic. And, you know, I've just been (laughs) pretty slammed, and so the podcast was more or less something I could put on pause for a bit. But with the summer comes a little bit of a break, and I am back to produce some more episodes. And, uh, you know, I've been driving back and forth a lot between the front range of Colorado out to the West Slope, where I'm doing my research right on the border of Utah and Colorado, in a lovely town called Grand Junction. And I've been driving a lot and listening to a lot of podcasts, all the office ones, Office Ladies, Deep Dive on the Office, Armchair Expert, of course, and the Victory Podcast, which is a great one, all about the show Entourage. But all to say, I've been listening to a lot of really wonderful podcasts, and it's been getting me just excited to reproduce and recreate some more episodes and uh, at the very least finish up season two and I'm putting together season three now. So I'm very excited. I have more content for you today and in the weeks to come. So thank you for your patience. It really means a lot. And if you've stuck around to get to this point, I really appreciate that. So what I want to do today is talk a little bit about what's been preoccupying so much of my time my PhD program. And I want to talk to you guys today about orchard systems and the necessary conversion and revolution that's happening all around the world with many different tree fruit species of shifting from low density planting systems to high density planting systems. Now I know that might sound like very jargony, but trust me, as I will take you on this journey and flush out what I mean and why this is contributing to our environment and to the sustainability of agriculture. So grab a cup of coffee, grab a little snack. If you are currently driving on the road, get in a nice comfy position, sit back and enjoy the show. Welcome to Environmentality, a podcast for current environmental news, lectures, and interviews with the experts. I'm your host, Brendan Anthony. Let's dive on in. All right, welcome back, everybody. My name is Brendan Anthony, the host of Environmentality Podcast. I'm so happy you are joining me today. Today, I'm going to be talking to you guys about my PhD research and focusing on peaches. So for those of you who don't know, I am currently a PhD candidate at Colorado State University, where I'm in the horticulture department. Well, what is horticulture first and foremost? Well, it's a division of agriculture. So agriculture is the combination of both animals and plants. So you have livestock and then you have horticulture. Under the horticulture umbrella, we have many different sectors. So you have ornamentals, which I'll have somebody on in a few weeks talking about sustainable floristry. You have vegetables, which has the fancy word of lariculture. You have turf grass management. You have viticulture, the growing of grapes. And then my favorite subject, pomology. Pomology is the study of fruits, the science of fruits. And yes, there's a whole science and a whole field, and I'm getting a whole degree on fruits. <laughs> so pomology is a fun word. Pome 
is coming from the Latin root pomum, which means fruit, and so that's where you get pomology. And within the sector of pomology, we look at many different types of fruit. So you have small berries, you have tree fruit, etc. Now, a lot of these fruits are in the rose family, so I'm going to get a little botanical. So for those that are plant nerds, you'll enjoy this. For those that are not, stick with me. I'm just going to drop some knowledge for you. So next time you're on a nice little lovely date, you can drop some plant knowledge. Everybody loves a plant nerd. So I'm going to give you some botanical knowledge for you right now. So most of the edible fruits that we eat are in what's called the rose family or rosaceae. That's the botanical term for the plant family. So in that family, you have different classifications based on the different types of fruit. So you have this pomoidiae subfamily within the rosaceae family, and that's referring to the pome fruits. Pome fruits are classified as apple, pear, and quince. And for those of you who don't know what a quince is, they're more popular in Europe. And as the classification suggests, it's kind of like an apple or a pear. They're not as sweet, but they're okay. And... <laughs> So these are pome fruit. Pome fruit are classified by fruits that are born from non-ovarian tissue. So I know that sounds weird, but for those of you that don't know, all fruit are swollen ovaries. Yes, I'm going to let that one sink in a little bit. All fruit are swollen ovaries of a plant, of a flower. So if we're going to jump back to like sixth grade biology for a little minute here, you have a flower, you have the pistil, which is the female part, and then you have the anther, which is the male part. The anther contributes the pollen, which then lands on the pistil to fertilize that ovary and turn into a fruit. So I'm just making this very simple because I feel that I'm losing a few of you. <laughs> All I have to say once the pollen germinates the tip of the pistil, known as the stigma, the pollen grows down the style and down into the ovary that fertilizes the ovule, which becomes the seed. The ovary then swells, and then you get delicious, beautiful fruits that we all love to eat and enjoy. Whew. All right, we still with me? Still with me? We're tracking? All right, so when that fruit is swelling, the whole goal is for that fruit to look appealing for some sort of seed distributor, i.e. humans, animals, right? So we see a nice lovely looking piece of fruit. We want to go up and pick it. When we pick it, we eat the flesh, the ovarian tissue, and then we'll toss the seed, the ovule inside. And that's how the plant is coercing us as humans or as animals to distribute its seeds, right? Because all plants want to be able to reproduce and spread their offspring and so that's really the the main function of all animal and plant life is to stay alive to be healthy and to reproduce and for a lot of intensive purposes that's the similar narrative of humans as well although we do a lot of other things in between like work and have fun and hang with friends but i like to think that the plants are having fun out there in the fields as well but all that's to say, the plant is developing the fruit in an attempt to make the seed more attractive, to make the seed have some sort of allure so that some animal or something will then help distribute that seed into other places to plant the seed, etc. So going back to palm fruit, palm fruit are non-ovarian tissues. So things like the style may swell. Uh, other parts of the flower may swell to create fruit. So when you're eating an apple, you're actually eating the swollen style of the 
flower, not necessarily the ovarian tissue. Now this is contrasted with other types of fruit, which are things like stone fruit, which are my favorite types of fruit. The botanical classification for stone fruit are droops. Droops have pits or stony hard sheaths around their seed that's inside. And so you bite into a peach, a nectarine, a cherry, right? You get these pits. Inside of those pits are the seed. And so this is a protective mechanism so that if you are or an animal is eating the fruit, it doesn't damage the seed so that the seed is protected so it can go on to be germinated and grow into another plant. So you have stone fruit, you have palm fruit, and there's many other types of fruit. But for the purposes of this lecture, I'm just going to dive deep now on stone fruit, which is my primary focus of my PhD. And so I want to do a little bit of a deep dive on this classification of fruit. So, but before I get there, I want to drop just a few more fun facts. So what are stone fruits? So as I mentioned, peaches, nectarines, cherries, apricots, plums, but also things like almonds are a stone fruit. And so if you've never seen an actual almond fruit, it looks very much so like a peach. It's like a small green peach. And inside the flesh, you have the pit, the stone. And inside of that pit, you have the seed. And that seed is actually the almond. If you were to pick a peach and open up the pit, you'd see something that looks very much so like an almond. You can eat it, but it's very bitter. So just another little fun fact for you. So almonds are actually not a nut. They are a seed. Anyways, I'll stop with the fun botanical facts now and start <laughs> jumping into what I wanted to talk about, how this all relates to sustainable agriculture. So peaches, let's focus in on peaches. This is what my research is about. So in Colorado, we have the seventh largest peach industry in the country. California is number one. But when you look at in terms of value of production, how much gross revenue that industry brings in for each state, Colorado is ranked fifth. California still stays at number one. And so that jump in value is a result of the fact that Colorado is selling their peaches for very high price value. This is called the farm gate price, which is essentially the price per pound wholesale that farmers are getting for their peaches. And in some years, we can exceed more than a dollar per pound or $2.2 per kilo for my metric friends. This is a lot of money because the national average is about 60 cents per pound, okay? So you're seeing about a 40 cent difference per pound, and when you're producing tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of pounds, that starts to really multiply. And so in Colorado, we're getting this extremely high price per pound, and this is because of our quality premium. We have very high quality peaches in Colorado, we have the number one price per pound, the number one farm gate price in the country, whereas California is ranked last amongst the major producers. So you see this dichotomy of California focusing on quantity over quality, whereas Colorado really focuses on quality over quantity. And what's interesting about this is that it has to do with the demographics of the consumers. So for example, in Colorado, a lot of the fruit we sell stays within the state lines. We have a very local, fanatical consumer base. And if you've ever been to Colorado during the summertime, you'll hear about Palisade peaches. Palisade is the region where a lot of these peaches are grown. And Palisade peaches have this kind of quality brand to them. And the reason why is because they're shipping locally. You can start to pick your fruit at a more tree-ripe stage. And what I mean by that is if you leave a fruit on a tree longer, not till it's over, right, but just longer, 
it's going to start tasting a lot better because all the resources in the tree is going into that fruit to make that fruit more appealing for what? For potential seed distribution. Now, this is kind of in a natural sense. We're not necessarily doing that as humans now in an in a agricultural setting, but when these were wild trees and the forests of Asia and in uh, Eastern Europe, right? So all these tree fruit were developing these fruits to attract seed distributors. I digress. When you have to ship your fruit far distances like the California industry does, you need to pick them at a more what we call commercial harvest stage where they're going to be more firm. They're a little bit more green. They don't necessarily have the best flavor, but they're going to ripen off the tree, right? They are a climacteric fruit, which means the fruit can ripen off the tree. So if you go to the store, peach is looking a little bit green. You can just leave it on your counter for a few days. It'll ripen up. And it'll be softer, it'll taste a little bit better. The problem with that is that it's not going to taste as good as a fruit that's been tree ripened. right? So this is why you see a lot of tomatoes that have this dichotomy of vine ripened or not. Because a lot of the tomatoes that are grown are shipped very long distances. And like peaches, if they need to survive these long distances, be banged up in a storage shed, process through a grocery store, many people are handling them, they need to maintain a certain level of firmness. And so they're picked very green, they're picked very hard. And tomatoes are also a climacteric fruit, they will ripen off the vine. But again, they're not going to have the same amount of quality and flavor and aromatics as you would if it were to be ripened on the vine. This is probably why if you've ever grown your own tomatoes or grown anything of your own, it's going to taste a lot better because you're going to pick it at peak ripeness, peak maturity, and you're going to consume it quickly and you're going to get all the nutrients and all the delicious aspects of that fruit. But because we have a global agricultural system and things are being shipped very far distances and banged around, they need to be firm and picked at a much earlier stage. So that's the dichotomy when we look in at peaches. You have California, focus on quantity, focus on the commercial harvest stage for large exportation. Whereas in Colorado, we're really focused on quality. It's much more niche market. We have a local consumer base, so we can pick at a more tree-ripe stage. And with more mature fruit, better quality. Maturity is one aspect that controls for quality, but there are many things you can do in the orchard to increase quality. Because when we think about and when we look at the data around peach consumption, it's been dropping dramatically over the past several decades. And the reason why is because you're getting a lot of inconsistent quality, largely because these fruits are picked at a commercial harvest stage, they're kind of green, they're very firm, and consumers don't know to leave that fruit out for a few days so that it can ripen and soften up and then they would have a much better eating experience. They think, and you probably think, and I've thought, you go to the store, you buy a product, it should be good to go. It's ready to eat. It's a fresh produce. You don't want it to go bad. You're worried about it spoiling and wasting your money. You want to eat the fruit and you're probably excited to eat it. The problem is, is that a lot of these things aren't necessarily ready to eat at the grocery store. This is the same thing with pears. Uh, apples do a pretty good job of being ready to eat, but you know, you'll have issues with pears not being very delicious either, right? They'll be kind of hard and green as well. And so some pear varieties need a period in cold storage. They need some uh, period to ripen and turn a little bit more yellow. 
All that to say, when you are unsure of when to eat the fruit, you have inconsistent quality, inconsistent flavor, the consumer is not going to be so excited to go back and try that product again. Because of inconsistent quality, poor quality, poor consumer experience, consumption is going down. At the same time, you're seeing a huge rise in almond production, right? Because you have almond milks. Now you're seeing other milk products where less grossing crops are being pulled out and then being replaced with more lucrative crops based on consumer habits and trends and desires. And so this is why you're seeing a huge drop in especially California where peaches are coming out, almonds are going in. And that has a whole other set of environmental ramifications, which I won't get into now. But all that to say, quality is extremely important when you want to maintain a consumer base and you want to maintain a sustainable industry. And so if you want to have a sustainable industry, you need to focus on quality, which Colorado does. But the problem in Colorado, like most places in terms of agricultural production, is that we're running out of land that is arable. And we're also seeing massive amounts of urbanization in these rural towns where a lot of development is coming in. These beautiful areas that were once fruit producing or agricultural producing regions are now being occupied by people leaving the city. So I guess it's not necessarily urbanization. It's almost like the moving away from urban areas to develop other areas. But I'll have to say it's placing a lot of pressure on land. And so therefore, if we want to produce the same amount of fruit, or probably what I would suggest is we need to produce more fruit for this exponentially growing population, then we need to be able to do that also on less land. We start running out of viable options to do that. So we need to produce more. We need to do it on less land. We need to have the highest quality and we need to do it in a more sustainable fashion using less water, less pesticides, less fertilizers, etc. Right? This is the type of pressure that's being pushed on the agriculture industry, not just from consumers, but also from USDA. And when you look at the guidelines for what USDA defines sustainable agriculture, they set these precedents. You need to produce more with less. That's pretty difficult to do because if you talk to any farmer, they're already working with really razor thin margins. And so this brings me finally 20 minutes in to the point of this podcast. And I'll try to be brief and sum this up in a concise way. How do you produce fruit on less land with less resources and do it in a more efficient way where you end up with a high yield of high quality products? Well, this is where you're seeing a revolution in tree fruit production. Historically, when you think of a apple tree, you think of a peach tree, a cherry tree, right? You think of this large, sprawling, branching tree that you can sit under and read a book, take a nap, have some shade, right? And this just isn't the reality of most orchards anymore. You don't have this very idyllic heritage looking large tree in the backyard that you can hang a swing from and and have the children climb up into the recesses and build a tree house in this tree, right? So this isn't the case. You have very small condensed trees that are being grown very much so like you would imagine corn in straight rows, close together, small plants, etc. Because this is the only way to create more efficiency on a small or reduced piece of land. And so this is called high-density planting. 
high density orchard management. And this transition from what has been historically low density plantings, large trees spaced very far apart, into high density plantings, small trees compact, planted very closely together. This transition has happened already in apple. It's happened already in cherry. It's happening now in pear. And where our research is coming in is now we're trying to promote this transition in peach. And so the key to facilitating this transition from low-density plantings to high-density plantings is the development of dwarfing rootstocks. Now, in order to maintain genetic homogeneity in your orchard, for example, if I want to have all the same variety of apples or peaches, I want to have a whole block of galas, I can't go and plant the seed of a gala apple. Right, so every apple have five to ten seeds. And because apples require cross-pollination and many tree fruit require cross-pollination, it's very much so like two people having uh, getting together and having a kid, right? It's not going to be genetically identical, right? You're going to have parts of your mother, parts of your father in the same way. You're going to have parts of the female flower, genetic parts of the male flower, and that's going to create a new genetic identity within the seeds of that apple. So I can't take a gala apple, plant that seed, and expect to get a gala tree. You're going to get something else, a mix of the two. That's why you have so many types of varieties of apples, cherries, peaches, whatever it may be. In order to maintain a whole block of galas or a whole block of Granny Smith, whatever it may be, or, you know, people aren't as familiar with peach varieties, but, you know, a whole block of Red Havens, New Havens, Glow Havens, right? We have a whole Haven series in peaches. You have to graft. And what I mean by graft is you have to take a part of the tree and graft it onto what's called a rootstock. So you take a portion of the above ground shoot and you graft it onto the below ground portion, the root system. And you can develop root systems that have all sorts of characteristics, things like disease resistance, better uh, adaptations to soil pH or, you know, soil types. But another characteristic that's been developed in a lot of these rootstocks is the ability to dwarf the tree, reduce the size of the tree. And this is done through various different ways, like reducing the amount of water that can go to the above ground portion. So you constrict the xylem, you constrict the water flow in the, in the plant, and that helps keep the tree small. But when it restricts water, you're also restricting water to the fruit from the root system to the shoot to the fruit. And that then leads you with small fruit size and then poor fruit quality and not a lot of money for the grower. So you need a type of rootstock that can dwarf the tree hormonally. So plants like humans have hormones and uh, you can basically have rootstocks that are increasing the level of size constricting hormones. This would be like reducing the amount of HGH in humans, something like that, right? And so you can keep the tree smaller. And in this way, you're not affecting the water flow and you're not affecting fruit size. All that to say, it's very difficult in plant breeding, period, And you're trying to maintain certain characteristics because you want to have all these things in one genotype, in one variety. And it becomes very difficult to do. And so it takes a long time for this to happen. And it happened primarily first in apples. Then it's happened in cherries. And now it's happening pretty much in every type of fruit crop you can imagine because they've seen the success of what these high-density plantings can do. And so... You're seeing this shift now in mango, avocado, where, again, the focus is on first dwarfing rootstocks so you can control the size of the tree. And if you can control the size of the tree, you can then start to plant them a lot closer. So let's now start to talk about the benefits of these high-density systems. When you can create a smaller tree, 
you can create a much more efficient tree. So join me on this adventure now into discussing about training systems. I want you to place your hands together with your palms touching and fingers touching. And now I want you to open that up, keeping the base of your palm together and your fingers kind of moving away from each other. And then if you spread those fingers, you kind of create this vase bowl shape. This is, again, the typical old school style of what the canopy architecture or training systems that were used on these large trees. This is called an open vase system. But what you can probably intuit is that this is going to be a very non-homogeneous tree. This is not going to be a very uniform canopy, meaning that at the top, you're going to be intercepting and taking a lot of the light, and that light's not going to be reaching down into the bottom. And you're going to create a lot of shade in the middle portion of that tree. Now, this isn't a very efficient tree, especially in terms of light use, but in terms of production, because when you don't have light, you don't have flowers, you don't have fruit. And so you start to lose the productivity and you also see a decrease in quality in those shaded parts of the canopy. And so you may have all these trees, but only half of each tree is productive. Now this is obviously a huge issue, right? Because we wanna be producing more fruit on less land. And so we can't be losing half of the production of our tree. And so if we can make the tree smaller, and if you go back to putting your hands together, and leaving your hands together, right, you see a much more planar two-dimensional system as opposed to the three-dimensional open base system that we had before. And so when your hands are together, you can see you have a much more planar system and it becomes much more efficient because now you're going to have light that's able to penetrate into the full depth of the canopy. It's able to span from the top to the bottom uniformly. And we can have a much more efficient tree in terms of light use productivity. And if you can keep your fruit better exposed to light, you're going to have better quality. So when you plant more trees on a piece of land, let's say you have one hectare. Old school systems, traditional low density plantings had about 500 trees per hectare. Now we're pushing anywhere between two to three to 4,000 trees per hectare, right? So you are quadrupling or even going of 10x the amount of trees that were once historically on these pieces of land. And when you have more trees per land, you're able to produce more fruit per land area. Now, the individual trees may produce less fruit per tree, but because you have so many trees, you're able to produce a lot of fruit per land area. Now, the one probably large major drawback is that you have to have all that money at the beginning to plant all those trees. And that can be a huge financial barrier for a lot of growers. But you're able to produce so much fruit that you're able to recoup those costs pretty quickly. And you're able to maintain a higher level of production over time. So it's going to maintain a higher level of profitability. So there's a little bit of a startup cost, but you're able to end up in a much better place financially if you're able to proceed with the system. How does this now relate to sustainability? Well, as I mentioned before, you can produce more on less land. You're going to be much more efficient in terms of light. You're going to have higher quality. So, you know, sustainability is about profitability and money and economics, right? We talk a lot about the three E's. So the economic aspect of that is really important. But we also think about the social and environmental implications. Let's start with the social implications of having smaller trees that are more planar, less complex, and easier to manage. Well, 
This makes the job of a orchard worker or a laborer in the agricultural system much more easier. In a lot of cases, you're able to shrink the tree down so much that it's only seven, eight feet tall, which maybe to the average person, you can still reach the top of the tree. And in some cases, the trees are only six feet tall and it's completely pedestrian, meaning you don't need any ladders. And every year people fall off of ladders, picking fruit, pruning trees, whatever it may be. And that causes a lot of issues, you know, obviously injuries, lawsuits, etc. And so you're able to now manage the system without any ladders that creates a much safer space to work. It also becomes very easy, right? Things become very simple. You don't have this complexity of this big bushy tree, right? You can start to really calculate things out. Okay, so on every tree, I want five branches on each side. So it makes it easy to prune. You know how many fruit per branch you want so you can adjust the crop load very easily. So it makes it very simple, it becomes very mathematical. And then in that way, you can be very precise and it becomes very easy for people to manage these farms. And it overall, it just makes it a very simple system. You can also start to integrate things like robotics and mechanization into these systems because they are very calculated and precise. And so you can run things like hedgers down the row, which can prune off everything in one pass. You don't need to be, you know, finding branches and limbs in the depths of this canopy, knowing what to prune off, right? You can send robots down to pick fruit off. They have cameras and suction cups or claws, and they can see the fruit because it's all exposed and it's very simple to find. And, and so you can start to reduce the need for labor. But you can also then make the job easier for some of these guys, right? They don't need to be out picking and all this heat. They can just be running the machine. And this is a big deal because labor is becoming harder and harder to find for a lot of farmers and a lot of agricultural production managers due to issues of immigration, etc. The social implications of this are, are really vast, mainly being just in summary that it's easier to manage. And so therefore, the social well-being of these farm workers will be higher and better because it's not as difficult to manage. Now let's wrap things up on the environmental side of things. So we've done economics, we've done social, now let's do environmental. When you have systems that are much more simple, they are able to be more receptive of things you can spray on them. So in a conventional sense or an organic sense, you are able to have better spray penetration into the canopy if it's planar in design, right? You don't have all these dense foliage pockets that aren't getting exposure to sprays that are being applied down the road. And so if you can be much more effective with your sprays, you don't need to spray as much. And so from a chemical application point of view, you can start to reduce the number and amount and quantity and potency of these chemicals, which then obviously make a much more sustainable environment. And this is also true for organic systems because the reality is, is in organic systems, you need to spray an organic pesticide probably five, six, seven times to get the same amount of efficacy as one or two or three sprays in a conventional system. And so again, if you can have much more planar designs of your training systems and orchard systems, you can reduce the amount of chemical applications. And that also reduces the amount of gas and carbon footprint that tractor is putting off in your orchard. And so you can reduce fuel, you can reduce your carbon footprint, and you can reduce your chemical applications. When we think about these dwarfing rootstocks that are facilitating these systems, they have smaller root systems, meaning that they're going to be much more efficient. And they're not taking up as much water. They're not taking up as much fertilizer. And so the water use efficiency, the crop per drop, as we would say in the ag sector, it's going to be much higher 
because the trees are smaller, they're more compact, they are utilizing all the resources more efficiently. And this includes things like water, which is becoming more and more scarce. And we're seeing that here in Colorado, especially this year, we're in a huge drought. We're seeing record high temperatures and some growers are going to have to turn off their water come July, August, and have to go the rest of the season without any water because we have no more. And so when you're in a system where you need to produce more fruit of higher quality and you don't have any water, these dwarfing rootstocks may be a potential solution for increasing water use efficiency and reducing the amount of water needed to grow the same or more fruit, i.e. higher crop per drop. And this is true for fertilizer applications as well. And so overall, you can start to reduce the number of inputs that are degrading to the environment if they leach out things like nitrogen right we talked a little bit about eutrophication and obviously of course pesticides herbicides etc um, which also have a negative impact on the environment as well so you can see that these high density systems have multiple benefits they have the economic benefit of producing more fruit of higher quality on less land which increases profitability they have social implications of making it easier to manage, no longer needing ladders, the potential for mechanization and utilizing robots and robotics and drones, etc. And then they have the environmental impact of utilizing water and nutrients and chemical applications more effectively, more efficiently, and overall being able to potentially use less of them. And then there's been some recent studies that are showing that these high-density systems, because they have more dense root systems under the ground, are able to sequester more carbon, which also then contributes to climate change mitigation. Whew. So these high-density systems, I think, are very efficient. They're able to better expose the trees to the light, which then leads to increased quality. And if you're in a place like Colorado where we can harvest these things at a tree-ripe stage, you're able to get more price per pound and have a more profitable and sustainable industry. So as you can probably tell, I'm a huge advocate and proponent for these high-density systems, but there is some reluctancies because one, you need the dwarfing rootstock to facilitate the smaller tree size, which not all tree fruit species have yet, and it requires the replacing of orchards. So growers have to take their old plantings out and replant, which can cost a lot of money. But lastly, although these systems will maintain more simple design, it does require a high level of horticultural knowledge to pull these plantings off successfully because you're moving from a couple hundred trees per hectare to thousands of trees per hectare. And a hectare is two and a half acres for my non-metric friends. So it requires a high level of knowledge to be able to manage that many trees. But I believe that because of their design, it can be more simplistic in nature. So that's all I have for you. I believe that this is the future of orchard systems for many tree fruit species, if not all. And we'll see this revolution continue to take place in the United States and abroad in the years to come. That's all I want to say. Hopefully that's all made sense. I've taken you on a little botany lesson. I've taken you on the revolution of agriculture. I've talked to you guys about dwarfing rootstocks and planter training systems and the revolution that's happening in tree fruit around the world in both temperate and tropical areas, although it's starting in temperate apples and cherries and percolating through the system down all the way through, you know, citrus and avocado and cacao and coffee and all the other delicious things that we like to eat in the beautiful world of pomology. So that's all I got for you today. Hopefully you learned a lot and I will leave you with one last fast fact 
on the dichotomy and differences between a peach and a nectarine. Does anybody know the difference between a peach and a nectarine? I'll let you think about it for just a second. The only difference between a peach and a nectarine is that peaches have fuzz and nectarines don't. They're the same species, but peaches have what are called trichomes, which are little furry hairs on the skin of the peach, which helps reflect light and reduce the potential for sunburn. And so it's really hard to sunburn a peach, but it's very easy to sunburn something like an apple, which doesn't have these trichomes or something like a nectarine. And so the peach fuzz is a dominant trait, but the nectarine was a mutation where you got a recessive gene and now it does not have any fuzz. So that's the difference between peaches and nectarines. Peaches have fuzz, nectarines do not. All right, everyone, that's your last fun fact for your next cocktail party. This is Brendan Anthony from Environmentality signing off. Thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you back here later for the beginning of season three. What is up? I'm back for a little fact check segment. I'm going to start trying to add a little fact check to each episode because, you know, sometimes I get on a little bit of a roll and I start saying things and, you know, I don't always get it right. So this is my chance to right the wrong. So uh, when we talked about the flower anatomy, I said anther. It's really stamen. Stamen is the collective male part of the flower. Anther is the tip of the stamen which, as I mentioned, contains the pollen. So the stamen is the combination of both the filament and the anther. So for all you botany nerds that are getting mad at me, relax, relax. I'm correcting the record now. I also said poem fruit are developed from non-ovarian tissue. The botanical fruit classification is actually accessory fruit. Accessory fruits are born from non-ovarian tissues. But it just so happens that palm fruit are accessory fruits. So they're not necessarily interchangeable, but they have the same classification. And lastly, I mentioned that robots have suction cups. They don't have suction cups. They have vacuums. So they're developing these cool new robots in Washington State and in New Zealand where they have these large vacuum hoses sucking fruit off the tree as well as the claws, as I mentioned. So just wanted to correct those three things. And if you have any questions, feel free to shoot me an email, hit me up on Instagram at Brendan Anthony with two Y's. And if you're looking for a lovely way to show some support for the podcast, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, shoot me a rating or share it with your friends. All right, that's all I got for you this week. Go outside and enjoy that beautiful nature all around you.